Today's message is entitled, Great or Slave. We continue our series, uh, The Whole Truth. Now you know, as well as I do, when we read the Bible, that we must keep in mind that the Bible is written, or is not, like, not written like a book of science, where each statement seems to be complete in and of itself. 
When we come to the Bible, we take the totality of what the Scriptures have to say on a certain topic before we draw a complete conclusion. Unfortunately, half-truths are believed by many Christians and are taught as God's complete truth. Some individuals misuse God's Word and take statements out of context to justify or excuse certain destructive behaviors or practices. Now, we must always remember uh, and always keep in view what seems to be two conflicting ideas in the Bible. We must see them as twin truths, twin truths, because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and the Scriptures cannot be broken. We need to see these ideas as twin truths that need to be kept in healthy tension to each other, like we talked before, like the strings on a guitar or a harp or a violin. These truths can also be seen as two arms that extend from the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. His name is Jesus. Just as Jesus cannot be divided, neither can these truths. This morning, I want to talk with you about another two arms of truth that cannot be separated from each other. Authority and submission. The reality of these two ideas is generally never argued in the Bible, but they're rather assumed. If you turn with me over to the book of Romans, chapter 13, I want to just show you one instance where, where the writer, Paul, is not arguing for authority and submission. Rather, he is assuming they exist, and he is encouraging how they ought to be used. In this one instance, he's talking about submission, the authority of the government, and submission to the government. Romans chapter 13 and verse 1, it says, Let every soul be what? Subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are what? Appointed by God. And so the writer assumes the existence of authority and also subjection or submission right here in Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. I read a, of a story of an individual who recently attended a church where it seemed that some of the women had taken, or refused rather, to take any responsibility for any of their actions. Um, apparently, a well-meaning preacher who stressed the authority of God and men and the submission of women and unmarried children had influenced them to their detriment. These women's re women reasoned that if their husbands were, to, uh, were the, the head of the home, and of course this was a... Uh, uh, this was a, an extreme case uh, or situation that the, this preacher had been preaching to this congregation. They had reasoned that their husbands were to blame for any wrong that they had done since they were under the authority of their husbands. Now, the opposite extreme is also represented, those who reject authority entirely. Some have, uh, people have become so tired of the abuse of authority that they can't appreciate legitimate authority. And some have even even have a hard time calling Jesus their Lord, instead rather just like to call him their friend. Without a question, the proper roles of authority and submission have been a hotly debated subject within the church, especially in views, as views shift with the surrounding culture, and pressure comes to bear upon the Christian to conform to society outside. Now, how we relate to authority is one of the most imp important issues of life. Uh, sometimes teenagers and their parents struggle and tussle uh, for control in the home. 
Problems at school and work are often problems of authority. Problems in churches, if you get right down to it, sometimes are problems of authority. Pastors have been known to quit the ministry because the laity argued that only they had the authority regarding making decisions in the church. And then conversely, pastors have been forced to resign because they insisted that the church ought to do what they want to do solely. Now, despite their importance, we seldom discuss the subjects of authority and submission. And uh, maybe that's because of the strong varying differences of opinion on this subject, or perhaps we're just a little uncomfortable uh, with the words themselves, and so we avoid the issue altogether. But, what, but we can avoid these topics only as much as we can avoid breathing the air around us. Every social organization, including the church, is made up of an intricate web of authority and submission. So let's ask the first question here this morning. What is authority? What does authority mean? When uh, Christian Herter or Herter was governor of Massachusetts, he was running hard for a second term in his office. One day after a busy morning chasing votes and he hadn't had any lunch, he arrived at a church barbecue. It was late afternoon and Herder was famished. And as Herder f- uh, moved down the serving line, he held out his plate to the woman serving the chicken. She put a piece on his plate and turned to the person next in line. Excuse me, Governor Herder said, do you mind if I have another piece of chicken? Well, sorry, the woman told him, I'm supposed to give only one piece of chicken to each person. But I'm starved, said the governor. Sorry, the woman said again, only one to a customer. Well, Governor Herder was a modest man, an unassuming man, but he decided this time he'd throw his a little weight around. Do you know who I am, he said to the woman. I'm the governor of this state. The woman looked at him and said, do you know who I am? I'm the lady in charge of the chicken. Please move on. If you're in charge of the chicken, you're in authority. (laughs) Now, someone suggested this definition, and it's the one that we'll be using in our time here this morning. The the, the definition is the communication or or, uh, authority is the communication of power to achieve a particular belief or action by, uh, by others. Let me read that again. The communication of power, this is authority, the communication of power to achieve a particular belief or action by others. So this power might be expressed by, um, by reasoned argument or by example, or it might be uh, revealed or seen in excessive or coercive force. It might be as simple as a mother explaining how the toothpaste should be squeezed, or it could be as complex as the president of the United States running the country. But in each case, someone is exercising some type of power, whether rightly or wrongly, to affect the behavior of others. Now, there are various kinds of authority, of course. Authority based on knowledge, based on physical force, on charismatic attraction, on position, or perhaps even financial clout. Authority may be shared so that the various people exercise it at different times, or it may be limited to just perhaps a select few. But wherever people are together, Power is being communicated and therefore authority is being exercised. Now, in addition to power, 
legitimate authority carries a second component, and that is the right, or the idea of right. When authority is valid, it has the right to exercise its power, you see? Both aspects of authority are needed, right and also power. The problem comes, though, when someone has, who has the right doesn't have the power, and those who have the power do not have the right. And the first results in inept leadership, and the later, latter in abusive leadership. So the facts remain, we cannot escape authority, our own or that of others, and there is nothing inherently evil in authority. Without authority, there'd be absolute chaos and anarchy, I think you would agree with me. But authority does get abused. It gets expressed as, I'm the boss, and I'm better than you, and you have to submit to me and do what I say. That's abusive authority. The real dangers and abuse of authority come when it is viewed as a personal possession. I have authority, therefore I will do what I want. I am the one who is in control here, and I don't have to listen to anybody. <laughs> Naturally, with an attitude like this, it'll result in absolute disaster. Even so, people often submit to this type of authority, and they do so out of self-interest. If they are paid enough, or if they submit, only submit to maintain order or to preserve their own safety. Too often, authority and submission are both ways of seeking the best for ourselves in view of our circumstances. Now, contrary to what many people think, authority is not obliterated in Christianity. Jesus, he appointed 12 people whom he ordained with special functions. The early church appointed elders and appointed deacons where people lead and coordinate or take responsibility and accomplish tasks, authority is always being expressed. In Christ, however, authority is expressed and partaken of, but is not possessed. Let me say that again for someone's benefit. In Christ, authority is expressed and partaken of, but it is never possessed. Who possesses authority? We read that in Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. All authority comes from who? Comes from God. That's exactly right. He is the only one who possesses it. In the New Testament, uh, the New Testament is taken up with stories and with letters showing the authority of Jesus in his teaching, in his works, in his exaltation, you see, over every other authority and power. Look with me at Luke chapter 4 and verse 32. Notice what the writer says here about Jesus and his teaching, and his ability to perform miracles. Luke chapter 4, verse 32, it says, And they were, this is the people, gathered there in the Galilee as he went throughout Capernaum. It says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with what? Authority. His word was with authority. And Jesus gives similar authority to his disciples who continue in his ministry. You remember in uh, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus said, all power is given unto me. That word power is the word authority. Authority, it is different from the word Luke uses in the book of Acts when he says uh, that power will come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. That word power is dunamos, uh, that is dynamic power. This word power in Matthew 28 is uh, authority 
All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Therefore, go and make disciples. What's the connection? The power that I have, the authority I have, I give to you. And that's what we read in the New Testament. It's interesting when you read Paul, Paul often introduces himself in his letter to the churches. He either assumes or seeks to establish his authority over the churches. In Galatians and the Corinthian letters, Paul had to defend the legitimacy of his apostolic authority. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is one area, and the other area is in chapter 13. But let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 8. Paul often had to establish his authority. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 8. And yet Paul only used authority, the word authority, twice with reference to his ministry. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8, and 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 10. Apparently, the church in Corinth had a problem with Paul's established authority. He only mentions the word authority twice in conjunction with, conjunction with his ministry. Look at verse 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, Even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us, for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed. Now, the way some people think when you talk about authority, they think it's for destruction. But apparently, according to Paul, he was given the authority by who? By the Lord, and it was given for what? For edification, for the betterment of the church, you see. So why is it that Paul mentioned it only twice? Authority twice in conjunction with his own personal ministry. Because Paul rightly understood that he didn't possess authority in and of himself. He merely partook of authority and expressed it to the degree in which he proclaimed the gospel. Consequently, when Paul defended his role as an apostle in the Galatian and Corinthian letters, he focused on the gospel. He focused on his commission to preach and the fact that his activity had been in character with the gospel. The fact remains, and it exists, that we have no right to snatch the right to lead, nor do we have control, nor do we control the power of the gospel. On the contrary, the gospel lays hold of us and directs our lives, and thus we have authority for the gospel's sake only as much as we allow the gospel to live uh, in our, into our lives. That's where authority is derived from, you see. So what does all of this tell us? It tells us what we've already learned, and that is when we live for Jesus Christ and Christ lives in our lives, our lives take on a new perspective. This time, in one where authority and submission function differently from how they function in the world. The authority that a Christian might be called to exercise is not authority, and let me, let me just ask you to listen up here for a moment, the authority that a Christian might be called to exercise is an authority for others, not an authority over others. There is a difference. That is the authority that Christians, if you're called to exercise authority, you're called to exercise it for others, not over others. In the book Acts of the Apostles, page 543, Ellen White says, in the kingdom of God, position is not gained through favoritism. It is not earned nor is it received through an arbitrary bestowal. It is the result of character. That's right. It's a result of character. 
the crown and the throne are the tokens of a condition attained. I want you to notice how she uses, how she describes authority as a crown and a throne. The crown and the throne are the tokens of a condition attained. Tokens of what? What is the condition attained? Tokens of self-conquest through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so authority for others, not over others, uh, we have the right to express that only in as much as our character is in line with the gospel that pro provides and gives us that particular authority. Any authority a person might be called to exercise, whether it might be within the family, whether it might be in the church, whether it might be our occupations or in society, is not ours, but it is derived from God who alone has the supreme authority. This understanding concerning authority puts a check on the expression of authority and a check on the abuse of authority. So you might ask how. Okay, there are five areas. You can write them down. Here they are. Number one, the idea that authority is derived and not possessed puts a check on, uh, on authority and even the abuse of authority. How? First of all, Christians should not claim authority in areas where they neither have the right nor the ability. Christians should not claim authority in areas where they neither have the right nor the ability. You remember, Aaron and Miriam claimed equality with Moses when God had given him authority and particular authority and responsibility. You can read the story in Numbers chapter 12. And then we remember the story in Numbers chapter 16 about Korah, Dathan, and Abiram's desire to have the same level of authority that God had vested in Moses and in Aaron. And when the authority established by God was challenged, both were met with the judgment from God. And so, a proper understanding of authority puts a check on uh, an individual who desires to have authority where they have no right. Neither do they have the ability. It's interesting, over in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul even writes about women in the church not usurping the authority of the elder or the minister in the church. And we'll talk a little bit more about that within the context of the home shortly. God has no, doesn't seem to have a lot of patience for individuals who usurp authority. Secondly, there is no place in the body of Christ for being authoritative. You can have authority, God-given, derived authority, but there is no room for being authoritative since our authority is not our own and because it is expressed just conf to confirm the life and teachings of Jesus. Jesus said, you all are brethren. No one should ever be authoritative. And then thirdly, in Christ, authority does not lead to the denigration of people. Authority never leads to the denigration of people. If anything, authority leads to the denigration of the one in authority, for that person is made the servant of others. I want to read to you here from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 9 through 13. Paul had a very good handle on biblical authority. Notice this. He says, For I think that God has displayed us, talking about the apostles, last as men condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. 
You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the off-scouring or the rubbish of all things until now. Now here is Paul, who had the established authority given to him from God, not the established authority over the churches, but for the churches, declaring himself to be the least of all things on the earth. He even, he's telling the church, you guys are more highly esteemed than us. And so true authority doesn't lead to the denigration of others, but leads to the denigration of the one who has been given the authority. The person has been made a servant to others. Are you great or are you a slave? That is the question. Authority does not push one person up or another person down since we are all one in Jesus Christ. So that's the third area in which a proper understanding of biblical authority puts a check on the abuse of authority. Fourthly, authority does not allow any room for pride or self-congratulation. Authority does not make us one bit better when we were without it. Moses was known to be the meekest man on the earth, according to Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3. And yet he was given tremendous authority. No pride, no self-congratulation. And then lastly, most importantly, authority is not a prize to be clutched or to be coveted. The self-giving love of Christ, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, I'm reading from Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, allowed himself to become subjugated even until the death of the cross. The self-giving love of Christ, who did not consider himself consider equality with God something to be grasped, will not allow his followers to be enamored with status or with position. We also must practice self-giving love. Now, this authority is far different, and you'll admit with me, than the, the authority we see expressed in the world around us. This authority doesn't ever need to be defensive, and if wrongly attacked, defends itself by the character of the gospel. It is also quick to listen and recognizes both the temporary character of its leadership and the leadership itself is a gift of God. A person is not appointed to a church office or the position of a chair of a certain committee to enhance that person's ego. We all have enough ego as it is. Like any leader, that person leads by the permission of the people. An elder or a minister provides leadership and coordination to the congregation, but can do that only by listening and enabling people to do their jobs. If that doesn't happen, then those who've been given a sacred trust have failed. And these practices aren't just good for the church. These principles are good for business practices as well. So we've spoken on authority, but to speak just on authority is only to speak about half the issue. There can be no authority without corresponding submission. I'm sure many of us feel uncomfortable with the New Testament injunction to submit. Now, unfortunately, some have tried to suggest that the idea of submission was a later addition to the Bible because they didn't like it very, very much. Even if we don't like it, the gospel asks not just some of us to submit to others, but it asks all of us to submit to each other 
in Christ. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21. Notice, Paul says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Submitting to one another. God invites his people to submit to one another. This is mutual submission, and mutual submission doesn't make any sense according to the world's view, where submission only takes place where the subordinate yields to a superior. In fact, even Christians have a hard time with this idea. But the message in the Bible is clear. Christian living requires that we submit to one another in reverence to Christ. Now, submission is not the same as obedience or doing someone else's will, and it is certainly not an expression of weakness. Someone offered this definition, and it's the definition I'll be using here today. Submission is the voluntary surrender of one's rights or will in response to the purposes and actions of God. Let me repeat that. The voluntary surrender or submission is the voluntary surrender of one's rights or will in response to the purpose and actions of God. Relatives of submission are humility and agape love by which Christians are willing to give themselves in love to one another. Therefore, just as authority does not elevate, submission does not lower. Let me repeat that. Just as authority doesn't elevate, submission does not lower. The gospel says that we submit to others as an act of love and as an act of service. Any act of submission that is not in accordance with the gospel's understanding of love and service becomes therefore invalid. The same is true for the use of authority. The gospel views authority as an act of service for others. In fact, submission and authority both function at the very basis of of both those ideas as self-giving love for others. Jesus explained this thinking on authority and mutual submission in Mark. And I'd like to invite you to turn with me over there, Mark chapter 10. This is Mark's version of the scripture reading uh, Jesse read so well for us earlier on, Matthew chapter 28. But here we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, and we're going to read verses 42 to 45. Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45. Jesus explained this thinking on authority and submission in Mark. The, bro- the brothers, James and John, who were disciples of Jesus, they had, had requested to sit at Jesus' right and his left in his kingdom. These were positions of privilege and positions of status. And we know the story, the disciples were angry, no doubt, because they had not thought of the idea first. But they were angry and they were upset. And Jesus offered this counsel in Mark chapter 10 and verse 42 to 45 to settle the issue once and for all. Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45. And Jesus called them to himself. And he said, you know, and you know when Jesus, when Jesus called them to himself, you know that they came listening. Oh, hang on, Jesus isn't just generally teaching here. He's calling us to his side. He's got something very important to tell us. So they came with all ears on. And he said, you know, that those who were considered rulers over the Gentiles, what do they do? Lord it over others. Lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. 
but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And notice the next verse. And whoever of you desires to be first, let him be what? A slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here, Jesus seems to collapse the categories of authority and submission. Authority is basically responsibility. And whoever has the authority or responsibility will also practice, will also have to practice submission. In Desire of Ages, page 550, I want you to notice a very profound statement. Christ was establishing, Ellen White says, a kingdom on different principles. This is the commentary here on Matthew 20 and Mark 10. Christ was establishing a kingdom on new principles. He called men not to authority, but to service. He called the strong to bear the infirmities of the weak. Now, just in case someone uh, ends the quote there and says, there you go, Jesus did not come to establish authority, notice the very next sentence. Power, position, talent, education, she's not dismissing any of those, place their possessor under the greater obligation to serve his fellow man. That's true authority. Someone who's been given certain power, certain position, certain talent, certain education is placed under, the, the possessor is placed under greater obligation to give service and render service to others. This is what Jesus was talking about. But Jesus' uh, topic, Jesus' point, raises a couple of questions. How can a person lead if they're submitting to people's requests? And how can any of us submit when the actions or requests of another person are wrong? How's it possible? Just three, three things I want you to keep in mind. Keep these things in mind. Number one, submission doesn't mean that every request has to be honored. Submission does not mean that every request has to be honored. It might not be a good request. Number two, nor should wrongs be ignored or, to or tolerated. Jesus certainly didn't tolerate wrong or become a doormat acquiescing, acquiescing to every request. He never subjugated himself to every request. But thirdly, I want you to remember this. At the same time, however, he was willing to submit to the point that he died on the cross. And what that tells you and me is that true submission always lays opinions and rights aside to the honor and to the glory of God. That's what true submission looks like. So we've talked about authority. We've talked about submission. How is the teaching of authority and submission applied to relationships? We're going to take a look here at how it's applied to the relationship of the, the marriage relationship, especially in light of the injunction for wives to submit to their husbands. What does all that mean? Now, we know and we've seen it, poor teaching in this area has caused a lot of discomfort and has led to the abuse of women. Uh, take Emily's situation, for example. Emily's alcoholic husband had moved down the street from her, and he only came home when he wanted a meal, when he wanted intimacy, or the laundry done? Should she submit to this type of treatment? Now, Christian friends had told her that she had no option but to submit. And I want to let you know here today that that's absolutely absurd. 
Absolutely absurd. No woman has to be subjected to that kind of treatment. She, or a man in a similar situation, and it does happen, should show as much faithful love as possible. But giving into these types of demands would be a sacrifice of integrity and would reinforce the husband's wrong way of living. So how should we understand the texts asking wives to submit to their husbands? Some argue for the authority and dominance of the male on biblical grounds. They use the Bible to keep women in their place. Others disregard the texts on submission, saying that they are culturally conditioned statements that no longer apply. Neither approach can be or is right. A careful reading of the Bible will show that the Bible's teaching is more impressive than we first thought. I want to invite you to turn with me to Ephesians 5. The best-known text for dealing with the submission of wives occurs in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 31. So let's go over there now. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 31. It starts out, as we read earlier, by asking for mutual submission to one another. We must remember that context. Then the following verses ask wives to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. Now the submission of wives can only be treated as a specific example of mutual submission that is asked of all Christians. And we have to note that the most of the attention in this text is not on the submission of the wife to the husband, but on the self-sacrificing love of the husband. So let's start in Ephesians 5, 21. Let's read. Wives submit, well, I start with 21, not 22. Submit to one another in the fear of God, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be their own, to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she should be holy and without blemish. Verse 28, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. Verse 31, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So here, and in most other texts addressing husband and wife relationships, we find statements that seem to support two different models. The first model you will see is the headship model in which the husband is the head of the wife. And secondly, you'll see a second model. The second model is this, the model of equality. Uh, per- proposes equal worth and value. Now, equality is different from egalitarianism, which rightly protests exploitation resulting from differences among people, but goes too far in correcting the problem when it seeks to remove distinctions and suggests that equality means equality in every sense. For example, it's unfair for anyone to be an authority over another. That's an example. That's what egalitarianism suggests. It's unfair for someone to be an authority over another. But the Bible doesn't present that view. It presents equality. 
proposes equal worth and value. So in Ephesians 5, equality is found in the focus on mutual submission. Submit yourselves one to another in verse 21. And in the statement in verse 31 that says, the husband and wife shall become what? One flesh, right? So no matter what else is said from this point on, we need to remember that the head of the husband and the wife is Christ. Christ is the head of both. He is the Lord by whom, by whom both marriage partners order their lives. So the headship model is seen in the statement that the husband is the head of the wife. So there are the two, uh, the two ideas here, the two models. You have the submission model, or rather the uh, equality model, and you have the headship model where the husband is the head of the wife. Neither view, equality and headship, can be set aside by some type of exegetical gymnastics. This has and is certainly being tried even today on both sides. Neither view can be viewed as, uh, neither view can be viewed as normative, while the other is just simply culturally conditioned. The equality model cannot be viewed as unsustainable for a sinful world. It's doable by God's grace. And likely, uh, likewise, the headship model cannot be dismissed on the grounds that we are living now in the 21st century and we need to catch up with the times. Both equality and headship remain. To resolve this alleged riddle, we need to focus on two questions. First, why is the husband said to be head of the wife? And second, what are the results if we understand male headship in light of the entire context? So let's answer the first question. Why is the husband said to be the head of the wife? Fundamentally, every community must, for purposes of organization and existence, have a head. Even in our free age of insistence on the equality of men and women in all things, men and women alike regard the man who does not assume the leadership of his family in, in love with the something akin to contempt. The headship of the husband consists in his ability, listen carefully, the headship of the husband consists in his ability and responsibility to care for, sustain, and protect his wife just as Christ loves and protects the church. I want you to notice verse 23 with me for just a moment. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the what? Savior of the body. So man's role is one of protection, one of sustenance, and one of care for his wife. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, Peter refers to women as the weaker vessel. Now that description isn't intended to be pejorative, to be a put down. It's a reference, it's a reference to the fact that women tend to be weaker physically than men. Now, of course, women can train themselves to great physical accomplishments, and they have, and they can take care of themselves. But women tend to be more vulnerable than men and therefore exposed to more abuse. The concern is therefore for the nurture and for the care of the wife. And as we learned earlier, the biblical model for authority is service for rather than over another. That's the answer to the first question. Why is the husband head of the wife? because he is the one to care for, sustain, and protect his wife. Second question, what are the results if we understand male headship in the light of this whole context? Well, it's important to remember that the husband being the head is not in the position of privilege, 
but is rather in the position of responsibility, a word that is not enjoyed too much today in the 21st century. And I wonder whether this could be the reason why more men are willing to see their wives assume the headship position, or we could say wear the pants, because it's a responsibility. His responsibility is to love his wife and to give himself to care for her and to cherish her, and men are giving up that responsibility in droves. We are looking at the effeminization of men in the 21st century. If the wife is asked to submit to her husband, and the husband is asked, listen carefully, to love and give himself for his wife, is the wife being asked to do more in submitting than the husband is asked in giving himself? No, surely not. What the world sees as polar opposites, authority and submission, are collapsed together and work together in service and love toward others. Now, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul makes another fascinating claim. Just go back a few pages, 1 Corinthians 7, and look with me at verse 3 and 4. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 and 4. <clears throat> Notice what he says. He says, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due to her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Interesting. Paul states that the wife does not have authority over her body, but rather the husband does. But he says the same thing about the husband. The wife has authority over his body. Marriage, what he's saying is marriage is, a, is to affect a union in which the two persons give themselves completely to each other. The responsibility of the husband to care for his wife receives greater emphasis, but the dynamic by which the two lives is one in mutual submission. That is the way love simply operates. The responsibility of, of the husband to care for his wife while it receives greater emphasis but the dynamic by which the two live as one is mutual submission. That's how love operates. Invariably, at this point, question is asked, well, then who needs to make the final decision when the husband and wife can't agree? Is that the responsibility of the husband? Well, the question seems to be impatient with the process that leads to unity and in the end is misguided. If Christ is the Lord of the home and both husband and wife uh, if husband and wife are uniting under his leadership, should they sacrifice unity just for a decision? This is not to suggest that Christian husbands and wives always agree. But where mutual submission is being practiced and where the gospel is the basis for decisions, even where there is disagreement about an issue, there would be unity and a workable solution where a workable solution cannot be achieved unless circumstances absolutely prohibit it, then both husbands and wives should go back to the drawing board and repeat as needed. And when the husband follows the following advice found in Adventist home, page 215, Christ's authority is exercised in wisdom, in all kindness and gentleness, so let the husband exercise his power and imitate the great head of the church. When this advice is followed, only then... Does the husband have his wife's trust 
and thus the right to bring the discussion to a healthy conclusion after all other options have failed. This is what it means to submit to one another. This is what it means to love one another. This is what it means for husbands to be head of their wives and wives to submit to the loving leadership of their husbands. It's important to recognize, friends, that when the Bible talks about the two arms of truth, authority and wisdom and submission, that God is not obliterating gospel order. He's not doing that. In fact, a proper understanding, like we're trying to gain here this afternoon, is of biblical authority and submission actually reinforces gospel order. As we just saw in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul delineates an order in the home that asks for the husband to be the head of the home as Christ is the head of the church. Again, this is not a call to, to blind submission on part of the wife and the mother, a servile obedience, but voluntary, loving support to the husband that is fueled by the honor that he continually heaps upon his wife. This order provides a safe structure that preserves unity and fosters strong spiritual growth in that relationship. When everyone fulfills their God-given role, like the many parts of an engine working together to make a car purr, or like the members of a choir singing their parts to produce beautiful harmony, then the home will operate also at an optimum level that reflects the harmony that exists not only in heaven, but also exists among the Godhead. You know that there is authority and submission even within the Godhead. Even the Son subjected himself has subjected himself to the authority of the Father, and he came. He said, I came not to do my will, but to do the will of who? My Father. And Jesus, talking of the Holy Spirit, said that the Holy Spirit will not speak of himself, but he will speak of whatever I tell him to say. That's not to say that there is, uh, there is not equality within the Godhead. The three persons are one, absolutely. But there are roles, you see, even within the Godhead, and the home is to reflect that. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter four, 3. Verses 4 and 5. 1 Timothy chapter 3, over there by the three T's, Thessalonians, Timothy, and Titus. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, and then look at verse 17. Paul, he's writing about the qualifications of an elder who rules or superintends the many families of the church. And he connects the headship practice in the home by the Father to that given in the church by the elder. Notice, he says, talking about the qualifications of an elder, one who rules his own house well, having his children in sub submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Now keep in mind, when we're talking about rulership and headship here, we're talking about authority for service, not for others, not, not authority over others. Please keep everything that we have talked about in mind as we read these verses. Jump down now to verse 17. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses, four and th verses 3 and 4. And it says, one who rules his own house, verse 5, if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? And as you've already seen, there is no verse 17 in 1 Timothy chapter 3. <laughs> Paul elsewhere tells us that the elder is the, ru is the ruler of the church. It's interesting. And again, authority for others, not over others. Here are a few other verses here. 
The, tre- the teaching, by the way, the teaching of male spiritual leadership in the church simply represents God's order. That, like in the home, provides a safe structure that prevent, preserves rather unity and fosters strong spiritual growth. God has a reason for the order that He set up, and it just simply means that we ought to obey it and live within those uh, with, live within those guidelines. Other verses, both Peter in First Peter chapter five verses one through three, and Paul in Acts chapter two twenty verse twenty eight speak of elders as being overseers and under shepherds who are to provide for the safety and sustenance and growth of the church. It sounds like the role of the husband, doesn't it? It certainly does. Peter, keeping with the biblical theme of, of the greatest working as the least, encourages elders not to lord it over the flock, but to live a life of example for the flock. Writing to the Thessalonians, Paul, in admonishing the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 and 13, in admonishing the church to recognize those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you, presents the twin truths of authority, biblical authority and submission, you see. And then lastly, Paul, writing to the Hebrews, writes in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, obey those who rule over you, and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy, and I love this next, pit, next part, and not with grief, <laughs> for that would be unprofitable for you. All these verses reveal a gospel order that is to be preserved, not only in the home, but also in the church for the purpose of bringing about harmony and unity. And it only works if the men who lead, lead as Jesus loved his church and gave himself for her. After all, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We're told in Desire of Ages, page 644, it is loving service and true humility which constitute true greatness. True greatness. And it only works when there is a corresponding submission on the part of all in uniting to labor together, to point men and women, to point boys and girls to Jesus' free offer of salvation for all. It only works when we work together. When you look at the life of Jesus, you can't help but be impressed. When you think about the King of glory who stooped to become a servant, you cannot help to have your heart moved to follow his example. I remember the story where Jesus comes and the disciples are gathered there in the upper room. And there is no one to wash anyone else's feet. Normally there is a servant to do that job. And John records in John chapter 13, knowing that everything is in, is in the power of his hands, knowing that everything is subjected to him, the Son of God, the King of the universe in human form, took off his outer garment, humbled himself, took a towel, and bent down and washed his disciples' feet. An example like that is an example of true greatness. In Desire of Ages, page 439, we are told we shall be living. If we're willing, if we look at Jesus' pattern, 
If we look at Jesus' life, if we look at the one who is truly great, she says we will be willing to be anything or nothing, or nothing, so that we may do heart service for the Master. Are you willing to be anything or to be nothing so that you might do heart service for the Master? This is the authority that Jesus has given to his children, you and me, the power and right to uplift Christ in our lives, the power and right to reflect his goodness, the power and the right to speak of the self-giving love of Christ who did not consider himself to be equal with uh, equality with God, to be something to be grasped, but humbled himself and became a man and then subjected himself to be killed on that cruel cross. The greatest of them all became our servant so that we, his servants, might become great in the kingdom of heaven. Do you want to embrace true greatness today? Willing to be anything or willing to be nothing so that you may do heart service for your master? Are you willing to surrender all? That's our closing hymn here this afternoon. I surrender all. It's number 309. Are you willing to be, to be great, to be anything or to be nothing? Submit so that you might give heart service for your master.
Are you willing today to be anything or be nothing so that you might render heart service for your master today? By show of hand, are you willing to be anything or nothing for our master Jesus, who was, who was everything and became nothing so that we might live with him forever? Let's pray. Father in heaven, you see our commitment and our desire and our choice to be anything or nothing that we might render heart service for you, our master, the one who gave up all that we might have all. Thank you, dear Lord, for your example of authority and submission that we can live out in our lives. Oh, Lord, help us to get it right as we imitate the great pattern, the one who loved enough to give up everything. We praise you and we give you thanks, dear Lord, for such a great sacrifice. May we be anything or nothing for you this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.